From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. Dr. Gwen Stonkey, Associate Professor Emeritus of Washington State University, but I'm currently teaching as an instructor in the Walla Walla Community College Surfgrass Program. I've had the great pleasure of coming up as a turfgrass scientist with colleagues like Dr. Leah Brillman and my guest on this episode, Dr. Gwen Stanky. When we first met, she was a professor and extension specialist at Washington State University, but based in Puyallup, outside of Seattle, Washington. She studied at Texas A&M with Dr. Beard and Nebraska with Dr. Beard's protege, Bob Sherman. Before that, with Al Turgeon at the University of Illinois. Over the last eight years, she's led and instructed the turf program at Walla Walla Community College, training the next generation of turf grass professionals in the Pacific Northwest. Before we get to my conversation with Gwen, and since we're talking Pacific Northwest turf with Dr. Stanky, let's talk about the go-to product for microdochium patch control, Civitas Turf Defense. Civitas Turf Defense from Intelligro, combined with phosphites, have become the industry standard for microdochium control in the Pacific Northwest, especially for those seeking more organic programs that are less reliant on traditional chemistry. Learn more about Civitas Turf Defense, available from a variety of distributors throughout the U.S. and Canada in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations, or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com. All right, Gwen, welcome to the program. It's so great to have you. Let's start out with your background. Are you, uh, from the beginning, uh, a Flatlander, an Illinois gal? I am. Because it appears where you started your education, and did you bump into Turgeon down there? Yes, I did. Dr. Al Turgeon was my major professor, and he's actually who kind of sucked me into the turf grass arena, because I originally started out trying to go into forestry, and they told me they didn't want women. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, we'll get to that topic in a minute. So now, see, now I see the pedigree, correct me if I'm wrong, Uh but you had Turgeon and he sent you to Dr. Beard and then Dr. Beard sent you to the protege, Dr. Sherman. Is, Is that your pedigree? That is my pedigree. And that's uh, quite a few big names. Uh, You got basically three doses of some version of Dr. Beardisms, right? I certainly did. (laughs) And so uh, let's start out with what it was like actually working for him during your master's at A&M, right? He was bigger than life. And for those who know you, know you are, in fact, bigger than life, but not physically. (laughs) Thanks, Frank. (laughs) Yes, it was quite an experience for me, and I will never forget it. I'm totally grateful for everything that Dr. Beard did for me and the exposure that I got and all the things that I learned. He was always pressing me further and further. You know, he knew that I was, after coming through school, I wasn't as strong in chemistry. So the first thing he did was throw me into quantitative analysis and about threw me under the bus. But it, it strengthened me. So he, he was never going to shy away from telling you, you know, what he thought you could do to make yourself better. And it was always with a very good intention. There was always something behind what he was telling you to do. And those are three people, Beard included, who, you know, mm-hmm. are the real, uh, some of the original, I mean, not Dr. Watson original, Burt Musser original you know, not that right. Frank Howard original, but the modern, more modern generation. It's not right. like there was a lot of women in this business back then, Gwen. So since you no. brought it up, uh, Turgeon obviously had no reservation. Neither did the old man and uh, Dr. Yep. Sherman. So were you the first woman Beard had? Uh, yes, I was. 
And I will just let you know that when I got a bad grade in chemistry, I went to his office and I started crying, and he had no idea what to do. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. None of the guys ever cried, so (laughs) I have to admit it. (laughs) That's because they didn't have to take classes with me. So uh, what about old Dr. Sherman? So so you leave Beard. Let's start with what you did there. What were you studying at A&M? And that was in Dallas, right? Or was that at College Station? No, I was actually in College Station, but... Turgeon was up at Dallas at the same time. He had moved to Dallas from Illinois at the time when I was uh, at College Station, so he was around as well. So I studied antitranspirants on turf grasses because, you know, we're talking back in the early 80s. -hmm. We were worried about water and shortage of that. And that was with Beard at A&M. And then what what with Sherman at Nebraska? Dr. Sherman in Nebraska, I studied the dissipation of pendimethalin in, a, in the soil mm. as the pre-emergent went through the season so you could see, you know, where what its uh, life was through the system. Would I venture to say you're a bit of a weed scientist? Because even for somebody who cried when they didn't do good in chemistry, you wound up with a <laughs> chemistry PhD, didn't you? Yes, I did. <laughs> I had to work with a lot of different lab features, and I had a very good technician that worked with me in Nebraska, too, that helped increase my skills in, in running some of the machinery that I needed to do at that point because I'd not been exposed to that. So I was extremely blessed to have those people helping me. Yeah, no question about it. So then, you know, you're launched and your first gig at Washington State and pull you all up, I believe. Puyallup. When I met you there, you were the extension specialist and, and associate professor and working with my old pal, Eric Miltner, and a person who we lost entirely too soon, Paul Backman, right? I remember oh, yeah. visiting you back in the mid-90s when I was a visiting scientist on the USGA Research Committee. Talk about that gig. That was an urban turf gig before we were really thinking about turf being a very urban thing. You leave the middle of Nebraska and move to essentially the suburbs of Seattle. Am I correct? That is correct. So what was it like? And did you run there and bump into Dr. Goss or was he already gone by then? Oh, Dr. Goss was already gone. He retired in, I think, the end of 87. So they went through a couple interviews before I got hired. But he was still around. I mean, I still, up until his death a few years ago, we got together and talked about things all the time. I truly appreciated having his expertise and telling me what he did about things because he started it back in 59 Mm -hmm. here. And it had one of the longest-running turf program bulletins that you know, went into the TGIF files, and I was sad when we had to stop it, but he set a precedent for me, and and I appreciated his help in keeping it going. And I got to tell you, Gwen, when I've had a chance to visit in that part of the world, I, I really love it there from Northern California all the way up to Vancouver, British Columbia. It's I just love that climate, mostly because you almost can grow grass uh, 12 months a year there in, in some locations. But one of the things that Roy did, and maybe Stan too, I, I don't know, There was a lot of sand-based systems. I mean, if you had a public area, it had engineered sand in it. That remains to me a very unique impact of a turf grass program based in a city, right? That Roy knew enough that one of the chronic problems they were having was that they just needed to drain because of the way it was raining, Right. right? So can you talk a little bit about what it was like to actually work with most people that were growing sand? And I mean, is that the way it was? And you obviously adjusted what you did accordingly, right? Right. And and that changed over the years because whether you realize it or not, Roy's initial uh, recommendations were never to top dress with sand. 
And because <laughs> I went back in his files as I was looking at, through some of the things a year ago, I found his recommendations from way back. And he liked the native soil greens, so that's how it started out. But you can see that his plan changed over time. So it shows how we change with the flow of things. Yeah. And then you've got to up your nitrogen a little bit to manage that. Use some slow release or a lot of slow release products. And, uh, yes, we did have to work with that. Now, also being in Seattle, much like other progressive parts of the country. There was pressure to reduce inputs and chemical use, and I know you worked on the forefront of that. What was it like working in that environment, really being a public scientist before we thought much about that? It was fairly challenging. I had to make sure that everything I did was based in science, but then not get too complicated with it so that we could bring it to the public. And I think the most challenging issue, which we still face today, is when we take it to the public, sometimes it gets simplified a little bit too much. And then what we actually were trying to say didn't come out right. <laughs> yeah. So we had to be careful when people edited things that they didn't take liberties and make it say something that wasn't actually going to save water or actually wasn't going to limit leaching or something like that. And I have to say, as much as I give you a hard time, I love and respect the science that you've done in Miltner, too. And, of course, I oh, yeah. mentioned Paul Backman and Stan was around and you had Bill out in Pullman. I mean, Washington yes. State was a force to be reckoned with. And you were integrated into the consumer programs, the commercial programs. Eric was really good in that space because he was a fertilizer expert. So slow-release nitrogen mm -hmm. was right in his lane. So all's going good. There's no more program. What happened? They decided to shift directions. So they're more into a native grass breeding program at Washington State, and that's the direction that they've started to go. The program in Puyallup was a little bit defunct. So, And does the research center still exist? Yes, it does. It does? Okay. It does. There's just no turf. Oh, there isn't. Okay. So they just have other plants, and where there's grass, they're just cutting it. Right. Nobody's studying it, and now that Bill's not at Washington State, is there anybody teaching turf out there? Uh, they aren't teaching turf, but they do have people who are working in the grass breeding area. Dr. Okay. Michael Neff is working in the native grass breeding area, and uh, they do have a turf research farm there. And, and like I said, it's concentrating mostly on the breeding of grasses. Huh. Okay. So it seems strange because uh, urban areas... And I think Seattle has a history to UW, not Washington State, but I think the UW has some urban horticultural research going on, I think, in the Seattle area, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yes. The Center for Urban Horticulture is at the University of Washington, and I don't know why they offered it to WSU at one point, and they weren't interested, so it went to UW. Yeah. They have some horticultural things, and the Arboretum is right there, and we uh, collaborated with them while we were there. Right. And the funny thing is, Gwen, all of these colleges of agriculture, land grants especially around the country, are seeing the demand in urban areas, right, for some of our mm -hmm. expertise in, in plants and soils, right? They want our expertise right. in plants and soils, but we typically don't apply that expertise in urban areas, or at least if we do, 
it's not really as intentional. We tend to focus more on, okay, you fertilize like this, you do that. Not like what are the challenges you face in urban areas, particularly with climate change, urban heat island effect. We got Bermuda grass growing in Brooklyn. You got stormwater quality problems. You guys had your heat dome, uh, this craziness this past year. It seems like at a time when we need urban stuff, it seems odd that old uh, the old cougars uh, sort of dropped out of this, doesn't it? Somewhat, but you, I guess you have to look at it from the perspective of the university. They wanted to bring in more money. They felt like to satisfy the seed industry and the others that that was the direction that they should go. Right. Because, you know, extension work, as you know, doesn't bring in a lot of money. No, that's why they call it the cooperative extension service, right? <laughs> it's not a it's not the cooperative extension business, it's the cooperative extension yes. service. Okay. So, you land on your feet as the director and instructor at Old Walla Walla. So now, it's funny, you find yourself also at a really important point in turf where we have labor shortages. So what's it like right now to be on the front lines of training people in turf that may actually enter the industry at a time when there's probably 10 jobs for every one of them? Yeah, it's very different. When I first went to Walla Walla in 2013, there were jobs, and I had 10 or 12 students to start out with on campus. And then basically over time, over about six years, it dwindled to where they were all working. And so that's that's pretty much the turf program has, how should I say, morphed into a strictly online program out of Walla Walla because everybody's keeping their job and moving up within the industry. And I get a lot of students coming in who already have a bachelor's degree and have started working someplace and want to move up within their ranks. So the two-year degree really fits their needs because they already have a four-year degree. How do you feel about it being mostly uh, online? Like, the, obviously, your former mentor and undergraduate advisor started at Penn State in the world campus right. with the turf program. How do you feel about uh, strictly online education? It has its pluses and minuses. How about that, Frank? Yeah, it's fair. It's not ideal. You know, we've learned a lot over these last two years about how to present things better and do things better with Zoom. And mm-hmm. But it doesn't replace everything. It's not ideal. But I've learned a lot about how to film you know, operations of equipments. And, and then what I do is I, I work hand-in-hand with the superintendents that where the students are working, mm-hmm. and they help me check off boxes about working on equipment and knowing what works and things like that. So some of the physical stuff are fixing sprinkler heads. They have to send in video clips of that. So you, you find a way to make it as effective as possible. Do you find it odd? I did. Uh, found it odd that when I was looking to prepare for chatting with you, I looked on TGIF and at your refereed publications. And lo and behold, in 2001, you publish a research article on uh, online instruction, right? <laughs> you, yes, you and I Milner. Did. So, so, you know, you sort of sniffed this out earlier. And of course, you didn't join the Walla Walla faculty for another 12 years or so after that publication right. came out. So right. did you right. feel ready Uh, It seems to me you were the perfect person for exactly what Walla Walla needed it at the exact time they needed it. Right. And it was. And I don't know that you probably didn't know. I was actually teaching to the students in Pullman online from Puyallup. So Bill would call them in and I would teach. So I taught a golf course management and a sports turf management course, a one credit, two credit course to the students before I left WSU. So I actually did a sabbatic leave with Al Turgeon at Penn State for three months to study that. So I did start doing it at Washington State University. 
Before I ask you the next question, I just want to say, is Al Turgeon a visionary or what? Did that guy see things 20 years before everybody else or not? Right? Yes. (laughs) I mean, it's just... Yep, and he's still still going strong in his thought processes. He may be retired, but he's still going strong. Oh, yeah. I interviewed him a couple years ago, and he says, "Ah, I'm thinking about writing fiction. My daughter's helping me. She's an author, and I'm thinking about writing fiction. But Al's, you know, had some health challenges over the last several years. It comes to us all. But but listen, how many students do you have? And I wonder what your opinion is as you begin to wind down. Is this really what's going to be the pipeline for our next generation of turfgrass professionals coming through programs like yours? Well, I'll start out by saying that I have... You know, they're all in various places within the two-year degree. You know, I have, I've only got a couple students getting a one-year certificate, but I've got 15 students in my first year of the program and 19 in the second year. Okay, so that's, that's some pretty healthy numbers. You ain't kidding. And I look at it, Frank, as a puzzle piece, that it fits within the other programs. Mm-hmm. So I'm filling a niche that fits some of the students, but not all of the students. Okay. And, you know, programs, since we're, you know, if somebody wants the four-year degree and they don't have a four-year degree already, I I send them on to Oregon State if they're in the Northwest here or, you know, wherever they are to get their four-year degree if they don't have any other backing behind them. So do these tend to be valued staff that want to maybe move into a foreman or an assistant role or an irrigation tech role? Who are these students that this niche is that you're filling? Yeah, they actually are. Their superintendents actually send me the students. They say, hey, I've got somebody on my crew that I think would really be valuable. Right. And I want to move them up. Can you help me with them? Okay. You know, and so we, we work it out that way. So a lot of them are the superintendents in the Northwest send them here. But I do have students from all over the United States. I've got one in, in New York and I've got one, oh, I'm trying to think, in Arizona, Nevada. Hmm. But the majority are from the Northwest. Hmm. So as I think about where these students are going and where they're coming from, how many of them, their first language is in English? Percentage-wise? Just rough guess. Half? Less than half? More than half? Oh, I'd say more than half. I'm trying to think within the program. There's probably two that I can think of that their first language would be Spanish Yeah. in my program. Okay, so that's what I'm wondering, because we know who's doing a lot of the work on golf courses throughout our country, right? right? And we're not seeing a preponderance of people that aren't brown or black working on these crews as much as we used to. And I'm wondering how long until it makes sense to offer programs bilingually to get some of these valued members learning this stuff in their native language and then becoming leaders and also learning English, of course, but learning some of the technical stuff in, in their native language. Do you see this coming or not? I don't know. It would take a lot of work right now with the pandemic and everything. We've had to cut back quite a bit. So we do have some Spanish-speaking programs at Walla Walla, but at this point, I don't see Walla Walla doing it right now. Mm. Our pesticide programs do that. They offer the training classes in Spanish. So we'd have to see. We would have to have the demand to be able to do that because pretty much now, you know, when you need to make a class up, you have to have at least 15 students in a class to make it go and to pay off. Right. Okay, listen, we're going to lighten this up a little bit. I promise not to talk about how you and Leah used to physically, (laughs) physically abuse me. I want it on the record. I didn't bring it up with Leah, but with you, I'll bring it up. 
Uh, I don't want to bring it up again, but I do want to talk about the price you pay for beating me up all these years is to talk about what it's like to be a Harley broad, a a motorhead enthusiast. (laughs) I don't think people know that you got your own Harley and I think you've done your fair share of uh, motorbiking and and, and you put nice pictures of motorhead cars and old cars uh, in some of your social media. So uh, how the heck did this happen? Were mom and dad car enthusiasts or motorcycles? cyclists had this happen to you oh no dad didn't like that at all he was pretty upset with me but i i had a a a couple boyfriends as i grew up you know that had motorcycles and stuff and of course that didn't go over well with the family and i actually had a a honda shadow spirit of 750 candy apple red with flames down the side and and she was named a smiling wild thing I regret that I I just sold her, so I don't have her anymore, but that was fun. It was uh, something that I uh, enjoyed. I I read Cycle Guide from the time I was a teenager, so it was just something that was of interest to me, and it still is. I just decided it was a little too dangerous to keep riding right now. (laughs) (laughs) We have enough listeners. Hopefully, many of them get a chance to learn more about you and the great work you've done, but... It's not like I'd walk up to you and think, oh, wow, this is definitely a Harley chick right here, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I just love that your entire career, much like Leah, you guys have just really excelled at, you know, in a place where it was mostly guys that looked like me, right, Gwen? And (laughs) and it wasn't always uh, so easy coming up. And and I'll just thank you for persisting and being such a great colleague over these years. It's been great working with you and laughing with you. You've got a great spirit. And I hope listening today, this, uh, introduces a whole nother generation uh, of people to us old folks. You know, you and I, we're yep. old now. We can act as mentors as I get ready to retire. That's what I plan to do is wherever somebody wants me to help, I plan to give back if I can. Gwen, thanks for taking the time. It's so great chatting with you. Thanks, Frank. You're the best. I'm grateful to have the time to spend with Gwen Stanky and just as grateful to our friends at the Plant Food Company that have been meeting high-performance turf nutrition needs for more than 50 years. A relentless focus on superior product formulations has led to maximum performance and playability of your turf grass systems. Learn more about this at plantfoodcompany.com. Brianne Kenny, I'm the manager of environmental science for Trium Golf, doing environmental compliance of maintenance facilities, connecting with regulatory agencies and fun projects like wildlife habitat and water conservation studies on golf courses. Managing golf in the desert climates and often with poor water quality requires optimized infiltration and drainage, just like the rainy Northeast. Wouldn't it be great if there was a machine that increased infiltration by top dressing, aerating, and amending in one pass? Well, there is. Dryject Services. Dryject Services keeps the water flowing through your profile and plenty of air in the root zone. Dryject is a flexible and affordable service that can be designed to meet your surface and layering needs. Contact your local Dryject Service representative or visit dryject.com. Welcome to the show. So great to have you, especially on short notice and on the heels of the Phoenix of the tournament at Phoenix Country Club with Kenton, supporting Kenton and the guys. Let's start there. How fun was that? 
Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. I, I love, well, that's only the second tournament that I've worked, but Ken did such a good job and his staff were so welcoming and appreciative of us being there. We had so much fun the entire week. I told them it flew by despite having to work so much. I When Sunday came, I was like, wait, it's already done? So I'm assuming your first uh, endeavor was at the Women's Open at the Olympic Club. Were you on that group? Yes, I was. I was lucky enough to be... I think it was 30 of us females that came in from all over the country. So that was my first one. And it'd be hard to beat that one because it's so much fun with the women. So it's funny how things are turning out for you in golf. When did you start out at the Ohio State University uh, interested in turf? Or did it come about later through some of your work at the Powderhorn? Because you also snuck in a little Masters there and then a mini MBA. So you got quite a bit of training, Bree. Did you always intend to apply it into the golf world? Absolutely not. I had no idea that this would be the path I headed down. In fact, I had never even been on a golf course until five years ago when I I simply took a waitressing position at Troon Country Club down here in Scottsdale, Arizona, just to help get me through my master's. And my mindset at that time was get in there, get the money and the scholarship and get out. I had no idea that I would end up kind of falling in love with the golf courses, but I still remember the orientation tour we had for that waitressing position. They took us around the golf course. I was just on the back of one of those multi-person carts and just in awe of how much desert I was seeing. And I was just like, whoa, these are very different than I thought they were. From there, I just started asking questions and it kind of blossomed into this position now. So you were in Scottsdale waiting tables, but you did your master's at uh, Miami University, another great Ohio institution. I think Mm -hmm. the former home of Ben Roethlisberger, if I, if I, if I remember. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. So you're at Miami University finishing your master's and you're out waiting tables in Scottsdale. Does Miami University have a remote operation in the desert I should know about? No. So this is the best program I've ever been a part of. So for their master's in biology, it's online. So you have an international classroom, basically, because your classmates are from all over the world. Uh And then the only time you meet up is in the summers. You'll do like two or three weeks in a different country. I was able to stay in Arizona and even that's when I went to Wyoming and Oregon in the summers as well. So I was able to finish all my schoolwork while traveling around the world, nice. which was great. Right. You went to Guyana. Uh, where else did you get to go? Mm-hmm. My first summer I was in Mexico, kind of down on the Baja Peninsula. And then I went to Guyana and my third year I went to Thailand. And when you're making these trips in this environmental science program, was it focused on some particular research activity that you were doing, or was it just a sort of appreciation of what was going on in a particular location in these particular countries? Yeah, we, we would have like our own focus. And originally I started off in avian biology, but once I got on the golf course, I kind of changed my focus to urban ecology so I could think about golf courses in an urban context. But when we were in these different countries, they would also have kind of their own theme and relate that theme back to our own focus. So like Guyana was really exploring kind of the sustainability model where they were showing how the country was so good at building economic, social, and ecological programs. So they were able to preserve most, I think it's like 80% of their rainforest there is preserved Hmm. because they're focusing on building up the community. So then it was like, oh, I could take these concepts and figure out how I can apply them in my own 
focus, especially related to the golf courses. So when you say shifted to urban ecology, in your mind, did that include honing communication skills, right? It's one thing to study stuff in the desert, you know, walking, collecting data with a clipboard, writing a report or a magazine mm-hmm. article. It's another thing trying to communicate with the public like you have to do on a golf course. How well trained were you doing communication of these really complex ecosystems to people who were whacking a ball around? Well, luckily, I was a zookeeper before I did that master's program. So I had a little bit of training since I would give keeper talks. And then I got National Associative Interpretation Certification. So that's on my original track where I was thinking, you know, I might be a ranger someday or running uh, conservation programs for game and fish or something. So that was a certification I got to kind of give talks to the public. So I had a little bit of experience. One of the biggest things is understanding the audience. So I kind of had to tweak that from my old days of giving keeper talks and stuff to more school-age children. I had to change that up when I'm talking to golf members and things like that. As an environmental scientist in the desert, it's not like on the list of things that environmental science majors go into is irrigated landscapes, intensely managed landscapes like golf courses. So how do you reconcile this where the average person who's not from the West, who doesn't understand the golf market, and I was chatting about it with Brian Whitlark on a recent episode as well, and I've gotten to visit a number of times over the last few years. How do you reconcile what you see with what environmental science studies have taught you about resource conservation and use and things like that? Well, for me, context is incredibly important. What you usually see when I'm thinking about the courses, especially around the Phoenix area, they're in an urban or suburban landscape. For me, it would be a much different story if all these golf courses were plopped in the middle of a desert and you drove out to those. But because they're within these already developed areas, I me, that changes the story because this is what's exciting for me is this research is this research field is kind of new and more and more studies are coming out where The golf courses in these urban landscapes can provide ecosystem services. They have an ecological value because like Phoenix Country Club, where I just was, if you pull that up on a map, you can look around. Yeah, it's all houses. It's completely surrounded by houses. Exactly. And so you can see that's one of the only green spaces in the area. So that can serve purposes as water flowing to the property. I would love to see some more studies on the urban heat islands. We don't have enough of those coming out yet, but golf courses can kind of serve as a cooling area. I usually see so many animals flocking to the golf courses, and I would love to see future studies of radiocalline bobcats or mountain lions Mm -hmm. because we know that they're coming down and using the golf courses kind of move through the city. Mm -hmm. Well, since you brought it up, so glad that you did. Uh, Wildlife in the desert's been a little bit of an experience for me, and and really in my visits to driving around some of the Scottsdale courses, What I saw and what I heard was the following. Rabbits were like crazy eating the golf course because the desert had supported a big population and they had eaten down the desert and the bobcat population hadn't caught up to the rabbit population. And so you have this connected ecosystem out there and that's all well and good, but the rabbits were a problem right? They were causing uh, turf damage Mm -hmm. and people are scared of some of those things you just mentioned. How do you balance these things, Bree? How do you balance 
what is encouraging and supporting a healthy ecosystem that includes wildlife, but then preventing them from becoming a nuisance or a fear? It's tough because it's a full system and we do get these questions a lot, especially when you're thinking about bobcats and coyotes. There are people that are afraid of them. They're afraid of what they could do to their pets. But we try to do our best to educate people that those are one of your best options for controlling populations of rabbits, Mm -hmm. for example. I tried Luckily, you know, that Yellowstone example with the wolves and the elk, that's a pretty well-known example. And I can usually point back to that. Like, we have to think about the entire system. And if we want to keep a population of something in check, we have to keep the populations of what eats them and what they eat in check as well. Mm-hmm. So I try to relate it to that, something they already kind of know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's never perfect. <laughs> Luckily, we, get, we do get a lot of projects out here where people will release owls or hawks. People seem to love those more than the coyotes. So <laughs> we try to find different ways we can work with people and kind of manage those populations without having to put our own inputs. I would love to see the natural world work itself out on the golf courses as much as possible. It's really wonderful that Troon has a position like yours. Part A of the question is, have they always had it? Or did they take one look at you and your skills and say, yeah, this is what this woman needs to be doing. And so now you get this cool job because maybe it didn't exist before. And or what's it like working in a sort of a corporate golf environment where it's very customer service focused, not necessarily environmentally science focused? So is it a new role? And and what's it like working in a company like Truth? Yes, it is a new role. And I'm very lucky that the agronomy team kind of recognized the need and the importance for such a role because after I started waitressing, I kind of jumped into golf course maintenance side of things and I had been traveling around Troon properties. And that's when one of the corporate agronomists, Brian Hampson, he came by for a site visit at the Wyoming property. And once I met him, he asked me to come in to talk to the other two, Dave Nichols and Jeff Spangler, at the corporate office in Scottsdale. So after I talked to them, luckily they were willing to take a chance on me and create a position. They recognized that. This is something that's growing, and this is something that they need to do, and they've been completely supportive. So I love that. And it's funny that you mentioned the corporate thing because, you know, this week we were just all out volunteering at Phoenix Country Club, and I was laughing because Dave and Brian were there every single day working all the shifts, and they are known for jumping in bunkers, breaking them out themselves, you know, jumping on any piece of equipment. So to me, yeah, we are corporate, but... It's never felt like that to me. I was kind of worried about that at first. You know, I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be good for a corporate environment. But it's so different than what you would think it is. And I'm so lucky to have those three, especially as mentors. Yeah. So for me, it, it still fits perfectly. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I know Spangler a long time. He was uh, pals with a colleague of mine here at Cornell, Eric Nelson. So uh, I know Jeff is a good, solid agronomist. Uh, I don't know. He might even be an Ohio guy because I know Eric Nelson. I think he is an Ohio guy. Yeah, because Eric Nelson is an Ohio guy, too. So listen, I can't talk to somebody like you about these topics and not hear your perspective on water, especially with the way water gets used uh, in the desert. You guys are just heading into your season now. I mean, this is the early part of the season that is desert golf, right? Green grass and sunshine. How do you reconcile the water use around desert golf, in particular the water use? 
It's funny because if you would have asked me five years ago before I walked onto that golf course, I would have said, oh, yeah, golf is causing all the issues in the desert. Let's just shut them all down to save (laughs) some water. (laughs) But now, especially, I've been involved in kind of representing the industry in Arizona's negotiations with our state water department. If you look at the whole state, on any given day, golf in total is only using about 2% of the state's water supply. So you could actually close every single golf course and it still, it wouldn't solve all water problems in Arizona. That was a big eye opener because I developed that bias in my head where I was driving around neighborhoods and when you asked me who was using water, I saw golf courses and I just assumed because I was seeing them every day, they were the ones using all the water. But we need to do a better job as people of understanding our own water supply and who's using water because ag is probably using about 72 or 73% of the water in the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got a lot of outdated infrastructure, so the system of supply itself needs to be fixed, and we could save a lot of water through doing that. It's frustrating to know that there are a lot of other entities that aren't even being measured or tracked. An example here is HOAs, common spaces. They are supposed to report to our state water department, but they don't really do, Hmm. so they're not really being tracked at all. We have no idea how much water is being used there. I kind of explain it as... If you ever had to cut weight or go on a diet, golf courses are kind of those big meals that you focus on. But if you've ever had to do this, you realize snacks can kind of make or break (laughs) it for you. And I kind of see like those HOAs, residential lawns as the snacks that we're not really counting, Hmm. but could be having a huge impact. And, you know, you studied a little bit of ecological economics, right? And so part of that equation has to be not just getting rid of that 2% of the water, but what my old pal Sean Emerson was quick to tell me was that that 2% of water generates about 4 to $5 billion worth of economic impact. So when you talk about having a golf course integrated into the physical environment, it's obviously golf is well integrated into the economic environment out there. Exactly. You know, I would even go a step further and say that if we can have more conversations about how golf and serve the community in a social aspect, that's kind of sustainability right there. You're you're trying to conserve water, you're generating a lot of economic impact from that use of water, and you're trying to benefit your community by offering them space and access to that area that's using the water. If we can get all of those three balanced together, that's how you have a long-term business here. For sure. And I wish we would think about that in more of our other industries as well, because I think we get hyper-focused on one aspect of that or something, and it's lacking. So to wrap up, I'll ask you, do you think you're going to be doing this for a while? Is golf a good place for a young female scientist like you? And are you hopeful maybe we're going to be able to, as an industry, engage with more young female scientists interested in the environment? Oh, absolutely. I wish I could clone myself in so I would have enough time to do everything that I want. I would love to do my own research projects and kind of what I'm doing, I'm hoping that this grows because I feel like we're on the verge of this getting bigger and bigger. And I would love to see more companies with a department like mine and even my department within my company grow because there's so much to think about it, especially if you you think of environmental compliance of the maintenance facilities, showing that they are conscious of how they're storing chemicals, they're following the rules, things like that. They're trying to do other things like cultural or mechanical practices before they throw chemicals down and then have people showing how we're reducing water. Like there's so much research that goes on, especially here in the Southwest and superintendent 
pay so much attention to their water, and the public just has no idea about that. And then there's even more room for fun things like these wildlife habitat projects, even bringing in naturalists for an internship or something where they can run bird watching walks or nature walks on the golf course for members. Yeah, I want to be here for quite some time, and I'm excited to see how much it grows. Yeah, and I'm excited to see you go back to some of these environmental science programs around the country and talk about your experience working in golf as a form of land management, right, that services people in urban populations as part of a broader system, you know, where we're going to live, not in isolation, but, where you know, having a green space uh, where we're going to live. So, Bree... It's so great of you to take the time to chat with me. I'm, I'm so happy to finally get a chance to talk to you. I've, I've really enjoyed all the images that you post uh, around social media as I watch it. And I love seeing you as a spokesperson for young women in this business. It's really great to have you on. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. And thanks for inviting me. Big thanks to Dr. Gwen Stanky at Walla Walla Community College and Bree Kenny of Troon Golf. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. And Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.